Disc 3 Chapter 12 The Cave in the Cliff Cautiously, the children made their way down the slippery deck towards the locker. The door of this had evidently been shut on the trunk, but had come open so that the trunk was not hidden as had been intended. Julian pulled out the little black trunk. All the children were amazed. Why should anyone put a trunk there? Smugglers, do you think? said Dick, his eyes gleaming. Yes, it might be, said Julian thoughtfully, trying to undo the straps of the trunk. This would be a very good place for smugglers. Ships that knew the way could put in, cast off a boat with smuggled goods, leave them here and go on their way, knowing that people could come and collect their goods at their leisure. Do you think there are smuggled goods inside the trunk? asked Anne in excitement. What would there be? Diamonds? Silks? Anything that has a duty to be paid on it before it can get into the country, said Julian. Oh, blow these straps. I can't undo them. Let me try, said Anne, who had very deft little fingers. She began to work at the buckles, and in a short time had the straps undone. But a further disappointment awaited them. The trunk was well and truly locked. There were two good locks and no keys. Blow, said George. How sickening. How can we get the trunk open now? We can't, said Julian, and we mustn't smash it open because it would warn whoever it belongs to that the goods have been found. We don't want to warn the smugglers that we have discovered their little game. We want to try and catch them. Oh, said Anne, going red with excitement. Catch the smugglers? Oh, Julian, do you really think we could? Why not, said Julian. No one knows we're here. If we hid, whenever we saw a ship approaching the island... We might see a boat coming to it, and we could watch and find out what is happening. I should think that the smugglers are using this island as a sort of dropping place for goods. I wonder who comes and fetches them. Someone from Kirin Village, or the nearby places, I should think. This is going to be awfully exciting, said Dick. We always seem to have adventures when we come to Kirin. It's absolutely full of them. This will be the third one we've had. I think we ought to be getting back over the rocks, said Julian, suddenly looking over the side of the ship and seeing that the tide had turned. Come on, we don't want to be caught by the tide and have to stay here for hours and hours. I'll go down the rope first, and then you come, Anne. They were soon climbing over the rocks again, feeling very excited. Just as they reached the last stretch of rocks, leading to the rocky cliff of the island itself, Dick stopped. What's up? said George, pushing behind him. Do get on. Isn't that a cave? Just beyond that big rock there, said Dick, pointing. It looks awfully like one to me. If it was, it would be a simply lovely place to store our things in, and even to sleep in, if it was out of reach of the sea. There aren't any caves on Kirin, began George. And then she stopped short. What Dick was pointing at really did look like a cave. It was worthwhile seeing if it was one. After all, George had never explored this line of rocks.
and so had never been able to catch sight of the cave that lay just beyond. It could not possibly be seen from the land. We'll go and see, she said. So they changed their direction, and instead of climbing back the way they had come, they cut across the mass of rock and made their way towards a jutting out part of the cliff in which the cave seemed to be. They came to it at last. Steep rocks guarded the entrance and half hid it. Except from where Dick had seen it, it was really impossible to catch sight of it. It was so well hidden. It is a cave, said Dick in delight, stepping into it. And my, what a fine one! It really was a beauty. Its floor was spread with fine white sand, as soft as powder and perfectly dry, for the cave was clearly higher than the tide reached, except possibly in a bad winter storm. Round one side of it ran a stone ledge. Exactly like a shelf made for us, cried Anne in joy. We can put all our things here. How lovely! Let's come and live here and sleep here. Oh, and look, Julian, we've even got a skylight in the roof. The little girl pointed upwards, and the others saw that the roof of the cave was open in one part, giving on to the cliff top itself. It was plain that somewhere on the heathery cliff above was a hole that looked down to the cave, making what Anne called a skylight. We could drop all our things down through that hole, said Julian, quickly making plans. We would have an awful time bringing them over the rocks. If we can find that hole up there when we are out on the cliff again, we can let down everything on a rope. It's not a very high skylight, as Anne calls it, for the cliffs are low just here. I believe we could swing ourselves down a rope easily so that we needn't have the bother of clambering over the rocks to the seaward entrance we have just come in by. This was a grand discovery. Our island is even more exciting than we thought, said Anne happily. We've got a beautiful cave to share now. The next thing to do, of course, was to go up on the cliff and find the hole that led to the roof of the cave. So out they all went, Timmy too. Timmy was funny on the slippery rocks. His feet slithered about, and two or three times he fell into the water. But he just swam across the pools he fell into, clambered out, and went on again with his slithering. <laughs> He's like George, said Anne with a laugh. He never gives up, whatever happens to him. They climbed up to the top of the cliff. It was easy to find the hole once they knew it was there. It's pretty dangerous, really said Julian when he had found it and was peering down. Any one of us might have run on this cliff and popped down the hole by accident. See, it's all crisscrossed with blackberry brambles. They scratched their hands trying to free the hole from the brambles. Once they had cleared the hole, they could look right down into the cave quite easily. It's not very far down, said Anne. It looks almost as if we could jump down if we let ourselves slide down this hole. Don't you do anything of the sort, said Julian. You'd break your leg. Wait till we get a rope fixed up, hanging down into the cave. Then we can manage to get in and out easily. They went back to the boat and began unloading it.
They took everything across to the seaward side of the island where the cave was. Julian took a strong rope and knotted it thickly at intervals. To give our feet a hold as we go down, he explained. If we drop down too quickly, we'll hurt our hands. These knots will stop us slipping and help us to climb up. Let me go down first, and then you can lower all our things to me, said George. So down she went, hand over hand, her feet easily finding the thick knots, feeling for one after another. It was a good way to go down. How shall we get Timmy down, said Julian. But Timothy, who had been whining anxiously at the edge of the hole, watching George sliding away from him, solved the difficulty himself. He jumped into the hole and disappeared down it. There came a shriek from below. Oh, my goodness! What's this? Oh, Timmy! Have you hurt yourself? The sand was very soft, like a velvet cushion, and Tim had not hurt himself at all. He gave himself a shake and then barked joyfully. He was with George again. He wasn't going to have his mistress disappearing down mysterious holes without following her at once. Not Timmy. Then followed the business of lowering down all the goods. Anne and Dick tied the things together in rugs, and Julian lowered them carefully. George untied the rope as soon as it reached her, took out the goods, and then back went the rope again to be tied round another bundle. Last one, called Julian, after a long spell of really hard work. Then down we come too, and I don't mind telling you that before we make our beds or anything, our next job is to have a jolly good meal. It's hours and hours since we had a meal, and I'm starving. Soon they were all sitting on the warm, soft floor of the cave. They opened a tin of meat, cut huge slices of bread, and made sandwiches. Then they opened a tin of pineapple chunks and ate those, spooning them out of the tin, full of sweetness and juice. After that, they still felt hungry, so they opened two tins of sardines and dug them out with biscuits. It made a really grand meal. Ginger pop to finish up with, please, said Dick. My word, why don't people always have meals like this? We'd better hurry up or we shan't be able to get Heather for our beds, said George sleepily. Who wants Heather, said Dick. I don't. This lovely soft sand is all I shall want, and a cushion and a rug or two. I shall sleep better here than ever I did in bed. So the rugs and cushions were spread out on the sandy floor of the cave. A candle was lighted as it grew dark, and the four sleepy children looked at one another. Timmy, as usual, was with George. Good night, said George. I can't keep awake another minute. Good night, everybody. Good night. Chapter 13 A Day on the Island The children hardly knew where they were the next day when they woke up. The sun was pouring into the cave entrance and fell first of all on George's sleeping face. It awoke her and she lay half dozing, wondering why her bed 
felt rather less soft than usual. But I'm not in my bed. I'm on Kirin Island, of course, she thought suddenly to herself. She sat up and gave Anne a punch. Wake up, sleepyhead. We're on the island. Soon they were all awake, rubbing the sleep from their eyes. I think I'm going to get Heather today for my bed after all, said Anne. The sand feels soft at first, but it gets hard after a bit. The others agreed that they would all get Heather for their beds, set on the sand, with rugs for covering. Then they would have really fine beds. It's fun to live in a cave, said Dick. Fancy having a fine cave like this on our island, as well as a castle and dungeons. We are really very lucky. Oh, I feel sticky and dirty, said Julian. Let's go and have a bathe before we have breakfast. Then, cold ham, bread, pickles and marmalade for me. We shall be cold after our bathe, said George. We'd better light my little stove and put the kettle on to boil while we're bathing. Then we can make some hot cocoa when we come back shivering. Oh, yes, said Anne who had never boiled anything on such a tiny stove before. Do let's. I'll fill the kettle with water from one of the containers. What shall we do for milk? There's a tin of milk somewhere in the pile, said Julian. We can open that. Where's the tin opener? It was not to be found, which was most exasperating. But at last, Julian discovered it in his pocket, so all was well. The little stove was filled with methylated spirit and lighted. The kettle was filled and set on top. Then the children went off to bathe. Look, there's a simply marvellous pool in the middle of those rocks over there, called Julian, pointing. We've never spotted it before. Golly, it's like a small swimming pool made specially for us. Kirin's swimming pool, 20 pence a dip, said Dick. Free to the owners, though. Come on, it looks gorgeous. And see how the waves keep washing over the tops of the rocks and splashing into the pool. Oh, couldn't be better. It really was a lovely rock pool, deep, clear and not too cold. The children enjoyed themselves thoroughly, splashing about and swimming and floating. George tried a dive off one of the rocks and went in beautifully. George can do anything in the water said Anne admiringly. I wish I could dive and swim like George, but I never shall. We can see the old wreck nicely from here, said Julian, coming out of the water. Oh, blow! We didn't bring any towels. We'll use one of the rugs. Turn and turn about, said Dick. I'll go and fetch the thinnest one. I say, do you remember that trunk we saw in the wreck yesterday? Odd, wasn't it? Yes. Very odd, said Julian. I don't understand it. We'll have to keep a watch on the wreck and see who comes to collect the trunk. I suppose the smugglers, if they are smugglers, will come slinking round this side of the island and quietly send off a boat to the wreck, said George, drying herself vigorously. Well, we'd better keep a strict lookout and see if anything appears on the sea out there in the way of a small steamer, boat or ship. Yes, we don't want them to spot us, said Dick. We shan't find out anything if they see us and are warned. They'd at once give up coming to the island. 
I vote we each of us take turns at keeping a lookout so that we can spot anything at once and get under cover. Good idea, said Julian. Well, I'm dry, but not very warm. Let's race to the cave and get that hot drink. And breakfast. Golly, I could eat a whole chicken and probably a duck as well, to say nothing of a turkey. The others laughed. They all felt the same. They raced off to the cave, running over the sand and climbing over a few rocks, then down to the cave beach and into the big entrance, still splashed with sunshine. The kettle was boiling away merrily, sending a cloud of steam up from its tin spout. Get the ham out, and a loaf of bread, and that jar of pickles we brought, ordered Julian. I'll open the tin of milk. George, you take the tin of cocoa and that jug, and make enough for all of us. I'm so terribly happy, said Anne, as she sat at the entrance to the cave, eating her breakfast. It's a lovely feeling. It's simply gorgeous being on our island like this, all by ourselves able to do what we'd like. They all felt the same. It was such a lovely day, too, and the sky and sea were so blue. They sat eating and drinking, gazing out to sea, watching the waves break into spray over the rocks beyond the old wreck. It certainly was a very rocky coast. Let's arrange everything very nicely in the cave, said Anne who was the tidiest of the four and always liked to play at houses if she could. This shall be our house, our home. We'll make four proper beds and we'll each have our own place to sit in. And we'll arrange everything tidily on that big stone shelf there. <laughs> it might have been made for us. We'll leave Anne to play houses by herself, said George, who was longing to stretch her legs again. We'll go and get some heather for beds. And, oh, what about one of us keeping a watch on the old wreck to see who comes there? Yes, that's important, said Julian at once. I'll take first watch. The best place would be up on the cliff just above this cave. I can find a gorse bush that will hide me all right from anyone out at sea. You others get the heather. We will take two hourly watches. We can read if we like, so long as we keep on looking up. Dick and George went to get the heather. Julian climbed up the knotted rope that still hung down through the hole, tied firmly to the great old root of an enormous gorse bush. He pulled himself out on the cliff and lay on the heather, panting. He could see nothing out to see at all, except for some big steamer miles out on the skyline. He lay down in the sun, enjoying the warmth that poured into every inch of his body. This lookout job was going to be very nice. He could hear Anne singing down in the cave as she tidied up her house. Her voice came up through the cave roof hole, rather muffled. Julian smiled. He knew Anne was enjoying herself thoroughly. So she was. She had washed the few bits of crockery they had used for breakfast in a most convenient little rain pool outside the cave. Timmy used it for drinking water too, but he didn't seem to mind Anne using it for washing up water, though she apologised to him for doing so. I'm sorry if I spoil your drinking water, Timmy darling, she said, but you are such a sensible dog that I know that if it suddenly tastes nasty to you, 
You'll go off and find another rain pool. Woof, said Timmy, and ran off to meet George, who was just arriving back with Dick, armed with masses of soft, sweet-smelling heather for beds. Put the heather outside the cave, please, George, said Anne. I'll make the beds inside when I'm ready. Right, said George. We'll go and get some more. Aren't we having fun? Julian's gone up the rope to the top of the cliff, said Anne. He'll yell if he sees anything unusual. I hope he does, don't you? It would be exciting, agreed Dick, putting down his heather on top of Timmy and nearly burying him. Oh, sorry, Timmy. Are you there? Bad luck. Anne had a very happy morning. She arranged everything beautifully on the shelf. Crockery and knives and forks and spoons in one place. Saucepan and kettle in another. Tins of meat next. Tins of soup together. Tins of fruit neatly piled on top of one another. It really was a splendid larder and dresser. She wrapped all the bread up in an old tablecloth they had brought and put it at the back of the cave in the coolest place she could find. The containers of water went there too, and so did all the bottles of drink. Then the little girl set to work to make the beds. She decided to make two nice big ones, one on each side of the cave. George and I and Tim will have the one this side, she thought, busy patting down the heather into the shape of a bed, and Julian and Dick can have the other side. I shall want lots more heather. Oh, is that you, Dick? You're just in time. I want more heather. Soon the beds were made beautifully, and each had an old rug for an under-blanket and two better rugs for covers. Cushions made pillows. What a pity we didn't bring night things, thought Anne. I could have folded them neatly and put them under the cushions. Ah, oh, there. It all looks lovely. We've got a beautiful house. Julian came sliding down the rope from the cliff to the cave. He looked round admiringly. My word, Anne, the cave does look fine. Everything in order and looking so tidy. You are a good little girl. Anne was pleased to hear Julian's praise, though she didn't like him calling her a little girl. Yes, it does look nice, doesn't it? she said. But why aren't you watching up on the cliff, Ju? It's Dick's turn now, said Julian. The two hours are up. Oh, did we bring any biscuits? I feel as if I could do with one or two, and I bet the others could too. Let's all go up to the cliff top and have some. George and Timmy are there with Dick. Anne knew exactly where to put her hand on the tin of biscuits. She took out ten and climbed up to the cliff top. Julian went up on the rope. Soon, all five were sitting by the big gorse bush, nibbling at biscuits. Timmy, too. At least, he didn't nibble. He just swallowed. The day passed very pleasantly and rather lazily. They took turns at being lookout, though Anne was severely scolded by Julian in the afternoon for falling asleep during her watch. She was very ashamed of herself and cried. You're too little to be a lookout, that's what it is, said Julian. We three and Timmy had better do it. Oh, no! Do let me too, begged poor Anne. I never, never will fall asleep again. But the sun was so hot and... 
Don't make excuses, said Julian. It only makes things worse if you do. All right, we'll give you another chance, Anne, and see if you are really big enough to do the things we do. But though they all took their turns and kept a watch on the sea for any strange vessel, none appeared. The children were disappointed. They did so badly want to know who had put that trunk on the wreck and why and what it contained. Better go to bed now, said Julian, when the sun sank low. It's about nine o'clock. Come on. I'm really looking forward to a sleep on those lovely heathery beds that Anne has made so nicely. Chapter 14 Disturbance in the Night It was dark in the cave, not really quite dark enough to light a candle, but the cave looked so nice by candlelight that it was fun to light one. So Anne took down the candlestick and lighted the candle. At once, queer shadows jumped all round the cave, and it became a rather exciting place, not at all like the cave they knew by daylight. I wish we could have a fire, said Anne. We'd be far too hot, said Julian, and it would smoke us out. You can't have a fire in a cave like this. There's no chimney. Yes, there is, said Anne, pointing to the hole in the roof. If we lighted a fire just under that hole, it would act as a chimney, wouldn't it? It might, said Dick thoughtfully, but I don't think so. We'd simply get the cave full of stifling smoke and we wouldn't be able to sleep for choking. Well, couldn't we light a fire at the cave entrance then, said Anne, who felt that a real home ought to have a fire somewhere. Just to keep away wild beasts, say. That's what the people of old times did. It says so in my history book. They lighted fires at the cave entrance at night to keep away any wild animal that might be prowling around. Well, what wild beasts do you think are likely to come and peep into this cave? asked Julian lazily, finishing up a cup of cocoa. Lions? Tigers? Or perhaps you're afraid of an elephant or two? Everyone laughed. No, I don't really think animals like that would come, said Anne. Only, it would be nice to have a red glowing fire to watch when we go to sleep. Perhaps Anne thinks the rabbits might come in and nibble our toes or something, said Dick. Woof, said Tim, pricking up his ears, as he always did at the mention of rabbits. I don't think we ought to have a fire, said Julian, because it might be seen out at sea and give a warning to anyone thinking of coming to the island to do a bit of smuggling. Oh no, Julian, the entrance to this cave is so well hidden that I'm sure no one would see a fire out to sea, said George at once. There's that line of high rocks in front which must hide it completely. I think it would be rather fun to have a fire. It would light up the cave so queerly and excitingly. Oh, good, George, said Anne delighted to find someone agreeing with her. Well, we can't possibly fag out and get sticks for it now, said Dick, who was far too comfortable to move. You don't need to, said Anne eagerly. I got plenty myself today and stored them at the back of the cave in case we wanted a fire. Isn't she a good little housewife? said Julian in great admiration. She may go to sleep when she's lookout 
but she's wide awake enough when it comes to making a house for us out of a cave. All right, Anne, we'll make a fire for you. They all got up and fetched the sticks from the back of the cave. Anne had been to the jackdaw tower and had picked up armfuls that the birds had dropped when making their nests in the tower. They built them up to make a nice little fire. Julian got some dried seaweed, too, to drop into it. They lighted the fire at the cave entrance, and the dry sticks blazed up at once. The children went back to their heather beds and lay down on them, watching the red flames leaping and crackling. The red glow lit up the cave and made it very weird and exciting. This is lovely, said Anne, half asleep. Really lovely. Oh, Timmy, move a bit, do. You're so heavy on my feet. Here, George, pull Timothy over to your side. You're used to him lying on you. Good night, said Dick, sleepily. The fire is dying down, but I can't be bothered to put any more wood on it. I'm sure all the lions and tigers and bears and elephants have been frightened away. Silly, said Anne. You needn't tease me about it. You've enjoyed it as much as I have. Good night. They all fell asleep and dreamed peacefully of many things. Julian awoke with a jump. Some queer noise had awakened him. He lay still, listening. Timothy was growling deeply, right down in his throat. He went. George awoke too and put out her hand sleepily. What's the matter, Tim? she said. He's heard something, George, said Julian, in a low voice from his bed on the other side of the cave. George sat up cautiously. Timmy was still growling. Shh, said George, and he stopped. He was sitting up straight, his ears well cocked. Perhaps it's the smugglers come in the night, whispered George, and a funny, prickly feeling ran down her back. Somehow smugglers in the daytime were rather exciting and quite welcome, but at night they seemed different. George didn't at all want to meet any just then. I'm going out to see if I can spy anything, said Julian, getting off his bed quietly so as not to wake Dick. I'll go up the rope to the top of the cliff. I can see better from there. Take my torch, said George, but Julian didn't want it. No, thanks. I can feel the way up that knotted rope quite well, whether I can see or not, he said. He went up the rope in the dark, his body twisting round as the rope turned. He climbed up onto the cliff and looked out to sea. It was a very dark night, and he could see no ship at all, not even the wreck. It was far too dark. Pity there's no moon, thought Julian. I might be able to see something then. He watched for a few minutes, and then George's voice came through the hole in the roof, coming out queerly at his feet. Julian, is there anything to see? Shall I come up? Nothing at all, said Julian. Is Timmy still growling? Yes, when I take my hand off his collar, said George. I can't imagine what's upset him. Suddenly, Julian caught sight of something. It was a light a good way beyond the line of rocks. He watched in excitement. 
that would be just about where the wreck was. Yes, it must be someone on the wreck with a lantern. George, come up, he said, putting his head inside the hole. George came up, hand over hand, like a monkey, leaving Timothy growling below. She sat by Julian on the cliff top. See the wreck? Look, over there, said Julian. At least you can't see the wreck itself, it's too dark. But you can see a lantern that someone has put there. Yes, that's someone on our wreck with a lantern, said George, feeling excited. Oh, I wonder if it's the smugglers coming to bring more things. Or somebody fetching that trunk, said Julian. Well, we'll know tomorrow, for we'll go and see. Look, whoever is there is moving off now. The light of the lantern is going lower. They must be getting into a boat by the side of the wreck. And now the light's gone out. The children strained their ears to hear if they could discover the splash of oars or the sound of voices over the water. They both thought they could hear voices. The boat must have gone off to join a ship or something, said Julian. I believe I can see a faint light right out there. Out to sea, look. Maybe the boat is going to it. There was nothing more to see or hear, and soon the two of them slid down the knotted rope back to the cave. They didn't wake the others, who were still sleeping peacefully. Timothy leapt up and licked Julian and George, whining joyfully. He did not growl any more. You're a good dog, aren't you? said Julian, patting him. Nothing ever escapes your sharp ears, does it? Timothy settled down on George's feet again. It was plain that whatever it was that had disturbed him had gone. It must have been the presence of the stranger or strangers on the old wreck. Well, they would go there in the morning and see if they could discover what had been taken away or brought there in the night. Anne and Dick were most indignant the next morning when they heard Julian's tale. You might have waked us, said Dick crossly. We would have, if there had been anything much to see, said George. But there was only just the light from a lantern, and nothing else except that we thought we heard the sound of voices. When the tide was low enough, the children and Timothy set off over the rocks to the wreck. They clambered up and stood on the slanting, slippery deck. They looked towards the locker where the little trunk had stood. The door of the locker was shut this time. Julian slid down towards it and tried to pull it open. Someone had stuffed a piece of wood in to keep the locker from swinging open. Julian pulled it out. Then the door opened easily. Anything else in there? said George, stepping carefully over the slimy deck to Julian. Yes, said Julian. Look, tins of food and cups and plates and things. Just as if someone was going to come and live on the island too. Isn't it funny? The trunk is still here too, locked as before. And here are some candles and a little lamp and a bundle of rags. Whatever are they here for? It really was a puzzle. Julian frowned for a few minutes trying to think it out. It looks as if someone is going to come and stay on the island for a bit. 
probably to wait there and take in whatever goods are going to be smuggled. Well, we shall be on the lookout for them, day or night. They left the wreck feeling excited. They had a fine hiding place in their cave. No one could possibly find them there. And from their hiding place, they could watch anyone coming to and from the wreck and from the wreck to the island. What about our cove, where we put our boat? said George suddenly. They might use that cove, you know, if they came in a boat. It's rather dangerous to reach the island from the wreck if anyone tried to get to the rocky beach nearby. Well, if anyone came to our cove, they'd see our boat, said Dick in alarm. We'd better hide it, hadn't we? How? said Anne, thinking that it would be a difficult thing to hide a boat as big as theirs. Don't know, said Julian. We'll go and have a look. All four, and Timmy, went off to the cove into which they had rowed their boat. The boat was pulled high up, out of reach of the waves. George explored the cove well, and then had an idea. Do you think we could pull the boat round this big rock? It would just about hide it, though anyone going round the rock would see it at once. The others thought it would be worthwhile trying anyway. So, with much panting and puffing, they hauled the boat round the rock, which almost completely hid her. Good, said George, going down into the cove to see if very much of the boat showed. A bit of her does show still. Let's drape it with seaweed. So they draped the prow of the boat with all the seaweed they could find at hand, and after that unless anyone went deliberately round the big rock. The boat really was not noticeable at all. Good, said Julian, looking at his watch. I say, it's long past tea time. And, you know, while we've been doing all this with the boat, we quite forgot to have someone on the lookout post on the cliff top. What idiots we are! Well, I don't expect anything has happened since we've been away from the cave, said Dick putting a fine big bit of seaweed on the prow of the boat as a last touch. I bet the smugglers will only come at night. I dare say you're right, said Julian. I think we'd better keep a lookout at night, too. The lookout could take rugs up to the cliff top and curl up there. Timmy could be with whoever is keeping watch, said Anne. Then, if the lookout goes to sleep by mistake, Timmy would growl and wake them up if he saw anything. You mean when you go to sleep, said Dick, grinning. Come on, let's get back to the cave and have some tea. And then Timothy suddenly began to growl again. Chapter 15 Who is on the island? Shh, said Julian at once. Get down behind this bush, quick, everyone. They had left the cove and were walking towards the castle when Timmy growled. Now they all crouched behind a mass of brambles, their hearts beating fast. Don't growl, Timmy, said George in Timothy's nearest ear. He stopped at once, but he stood stiff and quivering on the watch. Julian peeped through the bush, parting the brambles and scratching his hands. He could just see somebody in the courtyard. One person, two persons, maybe three. 
He strained his eyes to try and see, but even as he looked, they disappeared. I believe they've moved those big stones over the entrance to the dungeons and have gone down there, he whispered. Stay here and I'll creep out a bit and see. I won't let anyone spot me. He came back and nodded. Yes, they've gone down the dungeons. Do you think they can be the smugglers? Do you suppose they are storing their smuggled goods down there? It would be a marvellous place, of course. Let's get back to the cave while they're underground, said George. I'm so afraid Timmy will give the game away by barking. He's just bursting himself trying not to make some sort of noise. Come on, then, said Julian. Don't go across the courtyard. Make for the shore, and we'll scramble round it till we get to the cave. Then one of us can pop up through the hole and hide behind that big gorse bush there to see who the smugglers are. They must have come in by boat, either from the wreck or by rowing cleverly through the rocks offshore. They got to the cave at last and went in, but no sooner had Julian shinned up the rope, helped by the others, than Timothy disappeared. He ran out of the cave while the others' backs were turned, and when George turned round, there was no Timmy to be seen. Timmy, she called in a low voice. Timmy, where are you? But no answer came. Timmy had gone off on his own. If only the smugglers didn't see him. What a bad dog he was to do that. But Timmy had smelt something exciting. He had smelt a smell he knew a dog smell, and he meant to find the owner of it and bite off his ears and tail. Timmy was not going to allow dogs on his island. Julian sat close beside the gorse bush, watching all round. There was nothing to be seen on the wreck, and there was no ship out to sea. Probably the boat that had brought the strangers to the island was hidden down below among the rocks. Julian looked behind him towards the castle, and even as he looked, he saw an astonishing sight. A dog was sniffing about the bushes not far away, and creeping up behind him, all his hackles up, was Timothy. Timothy was stalking the dog as if he were a cat stalking a rabbit. The other dog suddenly heard him and leapt round facing Timothy. Timmy flung himself on the dog with a blood-curdling howl, and the dog howled in fright. Julian watched in horror, not knowing what to do. The two dogs made a fearful noise, especially the other dog, whose howls of terror and yelps of rage resounded everywhere. This will bring the smugglers up, and they will see Timmy and know there's someone on the island, thought Julian. Oh, blow you, Timmy! Why didn't you stay with George and keep quiet? From the walls of the ruined castle came three figures, running pell-mell to see what was happening to their dog, and Julian stared at them in the very greatest amazement, for the three people were no other than Mr. Stick, Mrs. Stick, and Edgar. Golly, said Julian, crawling round the bush to get to the hole quickly. They've come after us. They've guessed we've gone here, and they've come to look for us, the beasts, 
and to make us go back. Well, they won't find us. But, oh, what a pity Timmy's given the show away. There came a shrill whistle from down below him. It was George, who, hearing the row from the dogs, was feeling worried and had sent out her piercing whistle for Timmy. It was a whistle the dog always obeyed, and he let go his hold on the dog and shot off to the cliff top at once, just as the three sticks arrived on the scene and picked up their bleeding, whining mongrel. Edgar tore after Timmy up to the cliff top. Julian dropped down to the cave when he spotted Edgar appearing. Timmy ran to the hole and dropped bodily down, landing almost on top of Julian. He flung himself on George. Shut up, shut up, said George in an urgent whisper to the excited dog. Do you want to give our hiding place away, you idiot? Edgar, panting and puffing, arrived on the cliff top and was completely amazed to see Timothy apparently disappear into the solid earth. He hunted about for a bit, but it was clear that the dog was no longer on the cliff. Mr. and Mrs. Stick came up too. Where did that dog go? shouted Mrs. Stick. What was he like? He looked awfully like that horrible dog of the children's, said Edgar. His voice could clearly be heard by everyone down in the cave. The children kept as quiet as mice. But it couldn't be, came Mrs. Stick's voice. The children have gone home. We saw them. And the dog too, making off towards the railway. It must be some sort of stray dog left here by a tripper. Well, where is he then? said Mr. Stick's hoarse voice. Can't see no dog anywhere about now. He disappeared into the earth, said Edgar in a surprised voice. Mr. Stick made a rude and scornful noise. You tell lovely tales, you do, he said. Disappeared into the earth? Oh, what next? Fell over the cliff, I should think. Well, he got his teeth into poor Tinker good and proper. My word, if I see that dog, I'll shoot him. He might have some hiding place about this cliff, said Mrs. Stick. Let's have a look. The children sat as quiet as mice. George, with a warning hand on Timmy's collar, they could hear that the sticks were really very near. Julian expected one of them to fall down the hole at any moment. But mercifully, they didn't happen on the hole that led down to the cave. They stood quite near to it, though, while they were discussing the problem. If it's the children's dog, then those tiresome kids must have come to this island instead of going home, said Mrs Stick. That would upset our plan, all right. We shall have to find out. I'll have no peace till I know. We can soon find out, said Mr. Stick. No need to worry about that. Their boat will be here somewhere, and they'll be about too. It's impossible for four children, a dog and a boat, to be hidden on this small island once anyone starts hunting for them. Now, Edgar, you go round that way. Clara, you get along round about the castle. They may be hiding somewhere in the ruins. I'll have a look about here. The children crouched together in the cave. How they hoped that their boat would not be found. How they hoped that no one would find any traces of them at all. Timmy growled softly, wishing that he could go and find that stinker dog again. It had been lovely to bite his ears hard. Edgar 
was half scared of finding the children and a good deal more scared of coming up against Timmy somewhere. So he did not make much of a search for either the children or the boat. He went into the cove where the boat had been pulled up and although he saw traces where the vessel had been hauled up, barely smoothed out by the seawater at high tide, he did not notice the seaweedy prow of the boat sticking out round the rock behind which it was hidden. Nothing here, he called to his mother, who was going round and about the ruins, looking into every likely nook. But she found nothing either, and neither did Mr. Stick. Couldn't have been the children's dog, said Mr. Stick at last. They'd be here if he was, and so would their boat, but there's no sign of them at all. That dog must have been some wild stray. Have to look out for him, no doubt about it. Gone wild, I should think. The children relaxed after about an hour, thinking that the sticks must have given up looking for them. They boiled the kettle to make some tea, and Anne began to cut some sandwiches. Timmy was tied up in case he wandered out again to look for Stinker. They ate their tea quietly, not speaking above a whisper. The sticks haven't come here to look for us after all, said Julian. It's quite plain from what they said that they thought we had gone to catch the train home, taking George and Timmy with us. Then what are they here for? demanded George fiercely. It's our island. They've no right here. Let's go and turn them off. They're scared of Timmy. We'll take him with us and say we'll set him on to them if they don't clear out. No, George, said Julian. Do be sensible. We don't want them rushing off and telling your father we're here, or he may lose his temper and come flying home to order us back. And, oh, there's another thing I've thought of. What? asked the others, seeing Julian's eyes gleam in the way they did when he had an idea. Well, said Julian, don't you think it's possible that the sticks are something to do with the smugglers? Don't you think they may come here to take off smuggled goods or to hide them till they can take them off in safety? Mr. Stick is a sailor, isn't he? He would know all about smuggling. I bet he's in the pay of the smugglers, all right. I believe you're right, said George in excitement. Well, we'll wait till the sticks have gone. And then we'll go down into the dungeons and see if they've hidden anything there. We'll find out their little game and stop it. It will be terribly thrilling, won't it? Chapter 16 The Sticks Get a Fright But the sticks didn't go. The children peeped out of the spy hole at the top of the cave roof every now and again and saw one or other of the sticks. The evening went on and it began to be dark. Still the sticks didn't go. Julian ran down to the nearby shore and discovered a small boat there. So the sticks had managed to find their way round the island, rowed near the wreck, maybe landed on it too, and then came to the shore cleverly avoiding the rocks they might strike against. It looks as if the sticks have come to stay for the night, said Julian gloomily. This is going to spoil our stay here, isn't it? We rush away here to escape from the sticks and, lo and behold, 
The sticks are on top of us again. Oh, it's too bad. Let's frighten them, said George, her eyes shining by the light of the one candle in the cave. What do you mean, said Dick, cheering up. He always liked George's ideas, mad as they sometimes were. Well, I suppose they must be living down in one of the dungeon rooms, mustn't they, said George. There is no place in the ruins to live in proper shelter, or we'd be there ourselves. And the only other place is down in the dungeons. I wouldn't care to sleep there myself, but I don't suppose the sticks would mind. Well, what about it, said Dick. What's your idea? Couldn't we creep down and do a bit of shouting so that the echoes start up all round, said George. You know how frightening we found the echoes when we first went down into the dungeons? We only had to say one or two words, and the echoes began saying them over and over again, shouting them back at us. Oh, yes, I remember, said Anne. And wasn't Timmy frightened when he barked? The echoes barked back at him, and he thought there were thousands of dogs hiding down there. He was awfully frightened. It's a good idea said Julian. Serve the sticks right for coming to our island like this. If we can frighten them away, that would be one up to us. Let's do it. What about Timothy? said Anne. Hadn't we better leave him behind? No, he can come and stand at the dungeon entrance to guard it for us, said George. Then, if any of the real smugglers happen to come, Timmy could give us a warning. I'm not going to leave him behind. Come on, then. Let's go now, said Julian. It would be a fine trick to play. It's quite dark, but I've got my torch, and as soon as we are certain that the sticks are down in the dungeons, we can start to play our joke. There was no sign or sound of the sticks anywhere about. No light of fire or candle was to be seen, no sound of voices to be heard. Either they had gone or they were below in the dungeons. The stones had been taken from the entrance, so the children felt sure they were down there. Now, Timmy, you stay quite still and quiet here, whispered George to Timmy. Bark if anyone comes, but not unless. We're going down into the dungeons. I think, perhaps, I'll stay up here with Timothy, said Anne suddenly. She didn't like the dark look of the dungeon entrance. You see, George, Timmy might be frightened or, or lonely up here by himself. The others chuckled. They knew Anne was frightened. Julian squeezed her arm. You stay here, then, he said kindly. You keep old Timmy company. Then Julian, George and Dick went down the long flight of steps that led into the deep old dungeons of Kirin Castle. They had been there the summer before, when they had been seeking for lost treasure. Now, here they were again. They crept down the steps and came to the many cellars or dungeons cut out of the rock below the castle. There were scores of those, some big and some small, queer, damp underground rooms, in which, maybe, unhappy prisoners had been kept in the olden days. The children crept down the dark passages. Julian had a piece of white chalk with him, 
and drew a chalk line here and there on the rocky walls as he went, so that he might easily find the way back. Suddenly they heard voices and saw a light. They stopped and whispered softly together in each other's ears. They're in that room where we found the treasure last year. That's where they're camping out. What noises shall we make? I'll be a cow, said Dick. I can moo awfully like a cow. I'll be a cow. I'll be a sheep, said Julian. George, you be a horse. You can whinny and rumph just like a horse. Dick, you begin. So Dick began. Hidden behind a rocky pillar, he opened his mouth and mooed dolefully, like a cow in pain. At once, the echoes took up the mooing, magnified it, sent it along all the underground passages, till it seemed as if a thousand cows had wandered there and were mooing together. The sticks listened in amazement and fright at the sudden awful noise. What is it, Ma? said Edgar, almost in tears. Stinker crouched at the back of the cave, terrified. It's cows, said Mr. Stick, amazed. Then there's cows. Can't you hear the moose? But how did cows get to be here? Nonsense, said Mrs. Stick, recovering herself a little. Cows down these caves? Oh, you're mad. You'll be telling me they're sheep next. It was funny that she should have said that, for Julian chose that moment to begin baaing like a flock of sheep. His one long bleating, baaah, was taken up by the echoes at once, and it seemed suddenly as if hundreds of poor lost sheep were baaing their way down the dungeons. Mr. Stick jumped to his feet, as white as a sheet. Well... If it isn't sheep now, he said. What's up? What's in these here dungeons? Oh, I never did like them. <coughs> Went the mournful bleats all round and about. And then George started her whinnying and neighing, just like an impatient horse. The little girl tossed her head in the darkness and rumphed exactly like a horse. And then she stamped with her foot, and at once the echoes stamped too, sending the whinnying and neighing and stamping into the Stick's cave twenty times louder than George had made them. Poor Stinker began to whine pitifully. He was frightened almost out of his life. He pressed himself against the floor as if he would like to disappear into it. Edgar clutched his mother's arm. Let's go up! He said, I can't stay here. There's hundreds of sheep and horses and cows roaming these dungeons. You can hear them. They're not real, but they've got voices and hooves, and I'm scared of them. Mr. Stick went to the door of the room they were in and shouted loudly, Get out, you! Clear out, whoever you are! George giggled. Then she shouted out in a very deep, hoarse voice, Beware! And the echoes thundered out all round. Where, where, where? 
Mr. Stick went back quickly into the cave room and lighted another candle. He shut the big wooden door that led into the room. His hands were shaking. Queer goings on, he said. Shan't stay here much longer if we get this kind of thing happening every night. Julian, Dick and George were now in such a state of giggle that they could not imitate any more cows, horses or sheep. George did begin to be a pig and gave such a realistic snort and grunt that Dick nearly died of laughing. The snorts and grunts were echoed everywhere. Oh, oh, come out, gasped Julian at last. I shall burst with trying not to laugh. Come out, come out, whispered the echoes. Come out, out, out. They stumbled out, stuffing hankies into their mouths as they went, following Julian's chalk marks easily by the light of his torch. It was impossible to take the wrong passage if they followed his guiding lines. They sat on the dungeon steps with Anne and Timmy and choked with laughter as they related all they had done. We heard old Stick yelling to us to clear out, said George, and he sounded scared stiff. As for Stinker, we never even heard the smallest growl from him. I bet the sticks will clear off tomorrow after this. It must have given them a most terrible fright. Oh, oh, that was grand, said Julian. It was a pity I began to laugh. I was just feeling I might trumpet like an elephant next. The echoes would like that. Funny the sticks all staying on the island like this, said Dick thoughtfully. They've left Kieran Cottage, but they're not looking for us. They must be in league with the smugglers all right. Perhaps that's why Mrs Stick took the job with your mother, George, to be near the island when the time came, when the smugglers wanted their help. We could really go back to Kieran Cottage, couldn't we? said Anne, who, much as she loved the island, was not nearly so keen on it now that the sticks were there. Go back? Leave an adventure just when it's beginning? said George scornfully. How silly you are, Anne. Go back if you want to, but I'm sure nobody will go with you. Oh, Anne will stay with us all right, said Julian, knowing that Anne would feel hurt at the suggestion she should leave them. It will be the sticks who have to go. Don't worry. Let's go back to the cave, said Anne, thinking longingly of its safety and bright little candle. They got up and made their way across the courtyard to the little wall that ran round the castle. They climbed over it and turned their steps to the cliff. Julian switched on his torch when he thought it was safe, for it was impossible to see clearly in the dark, and he did not want any of them to fall down the hole instead of climbing down properly by the rope. Julian stood by the hole at last, shining his torch so that the others might climb down the rope in safety one by one. He glanced up, looking over the dark sea as he stood there, and then stared intently. There was a light out to see, and it was signalling. It must have seen his torchlight. Julian watched, wondering if it was a ship that was signalling, and how far out it was, and why it was signalling. Perhaps they're going to put more stuff into the old wreck for the sticks to find, he thought. I wonder if they are. How I'd like to find out... 
but it would be dangerous to go there in daylight in case the sticks see us. The signalling went on for a long time, as if a message was being flashed. Julian could not for the life of him make out what it was. It simply looked like the flash, flash, flash of a lantern to him. But it must mean a signal or message of some sort to the sticks. Well, they won't get it tonight, thought Julian with a chuckle, when at last the signalling stopped. I rather think the stick family will stay where they are tonight, too scared of sheep and cows and horses rushing about in those dungeons. Julian was quite right. The sticks did stay where they were. Nothing would get them out of their underground room till morning. Chapter 17 A Shock for Edgar the children slept well that night, and as Timothy did not growl at all, they were sure that nothing important could have happened. They had a fine breakfast of tongue, tinned peaches, bread and butter, golden syrup and ginger beer. That's the end of the ginger beer, I'm afraid, said Julian regretfully. I must say, ginger beer is a gorgeous drink. Seems to go with simply everything. That was the nicest meal I've ever had, said Anne. It really was. We do have lovely meals on Kirin Island. I wonder if the sticks are having nice meals too. You bet they are, said Dick. I expect they have ransacked Aunt Fanny's cupboards and taken the best they can find. Oh, the beasts, said George, her eyes flashing. I never thought of that. They may have robbed the house and taken all kinds of things. They probably have, said Julian, and he frowned. I say, I never thought of that somehow. How awful, George, if your mother came back, feeling ill and weak, and found half her belongings gone. Oh, dear, said Anne, dismayed. George, wouldn't that be dreadful? Yes, said George, looking very angry. I would believe anything of those sticks. If they have the cheek to come to our island and live here, they've the cheek to steal from my mother's house. I wish we could find out. They could have brought quite a lot of things away in their boat, said Julian. They must have come here by boat. If they did bring stolen goods, they must have put them somewhere. Down in the dungeons, I suppose. We might have a look round and see if we can spy anything without the sticks seeing us, suggested Dick. Let's have a look round now, said George, who always liked doing things at once. Anne, you do the washing up and tidy our cave house for us, will you? Anne was torn between wanting to go with the others and longing to play house again. She did so love arranging everything and making the beds and tidying up the cave. In the end, she said she would stay and the others could go. So up the rope they went. Timothy stayed with Anne because they were afraid he might bark. Anne tied him up and he whined a little but did not make a terrible noise. The other three lay flat on the cliff top, looking down on the ruined castle. There seemed to be no one about, but even as they watched, the three sticks appeared apparently coming up from the dungeons. They seemed to be glad to be in the sunshine, 
and the children were not surprised, for the dungeons were so cold and dark. The sticks looked all round. Stinker kept close to Mrs. Stick, his tail well down. They're looking for the cows and sheep and horses they heard down in the dungeons last night, whispered Dick to Julian. The sticks spoke together for a minute or two, and then went off in the direction of the shore that faced the wreck. Edgar went to the room in which the children had first planned to sleep, the one whose roof had fallen in. I'm going to stalk the two sticks, whispered Julian to the others. You two see what Edgar is up to. Julian disappeared, keeping behind the bushes as he watched where the sticks went and followed them. George and Dick went cautiously and quietly over the cliff to the castle in the middle of the little island. They could hear Edgar whistling. Stinker was running about the courtyard of the castle. Edgar appeared out of the ruined room, carrying a pile of cushions, which had evidently been stored there. George went red with rage and clutched Dick's arm fiercely. Mother's best cushions, she whispered. Oh, the beasts! Dick felt angry too. It was quite plain that the sticks had helped themselves to anything handy when they had left Kirin Cottage. He picked up a clod of earth, took careful aim and flung it into the air. It fell between Edgar and Stinker, breaking into a shower of earth. Edgar dropped the cushions and looked up into the air in fright. It was plain that he thought something had fallen from the sky. George picked up another clod, took aim and flung it high into the air. It fell all over Stinker and the dog gave a yelp and scuttled down the hole that led into the dungeons. Edgar looked up into the sky and then all round and about him, his mouth wide open. What could be happening? Dick waited until he was looking in the opposite direction and then once more sent a big clod into the air. It fell into bits and scattered itself all over the startled Edgar. Then Dick gave one of his realistic moos, exactly like a cow in pain, and Edgar stood rooted to the spot, almost frightened out of his skin. <gasps> Those cows again! Where were they? Dick mooed again, and Edgar gave a yell, found his feet, and almost fell down the dungeon steps. He disappeared with a dismal howl, leaving behind all the cushions on the ground. Quick, said Dick, jumping to his feet. He won't be back for a few minutes anyhow. He'll be too scared. Let's grab the cushions and bring them here. I don't see why the stick should use them down in those awful old dungeons. The two children raced to the courtyard, picked up the cushions and raced back to their hiding place. Dick looked across to the room where Edgar had brought them from. What about slipping across there and seeing what else they've stored away, he said. I don't see why they should be allowed to have anything that isn't theirs. I'll go across and you keep watch by the dungeon entrance, said George. You've only got to moo again if you see Edgar and he'll run for miles. Right, said Dick with a grin and went swiftly to the flight of steps that led underground to the dungeons. There was no sign of Edgar at all, nor of Stinker. 
George went to the ruined room and gazed round in anger. Yes, the sticks certainly had helped themselves to her mother's things, no doubt about that. There were blankets and silver and all kinds of food. Mrs. Stick must have gone into the big cupboard under the stairs and taken out various things stored there for weekly use. George ran to Dick. There are heaps of our things, she said in a fierce whisper. Come and help me to get them. We'll see if we can take them all before Edgar appears or the sticks come back. End of Disc 3